good to see every one of you. Uh, glad to see you connected with each other. I want to invite you uh, to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Our reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. And we pray uh, that your spirit, which you have promised to us, uh, would be with us and would help us. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand ourselves. Uh, Help us to understand the work of your son and the way that's meant to impact our lives. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This morning we are stepping back into our series on the book of 1 John, a series that we've titled Real Christianity. And uh, if you haven't been with us or you've already forgotten what this series is about, uh, the book of 1 John is written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, and he's now in his 80s, and he's writing to a network of churches that are in Asia Minor, and they're in danger of falling for counterfeit Christianity. And this danger is actually coming from inside those churches, not from outside. People trying to update and improve the historic Christian faith, make it more palatable, make it more uh, easy to swallow, uh, make it adapted to kind of the cultural moment. And John is writing to say that one of the best ways to spot a counterfeit is by becoming very familiar with the real thing. And John tends to put things very bluntly, not to be harsh, but to be clear. Because clarity is important in times of confusion. But I want want us to not forget 
John's purpose in writing. He actually writes to encourage a battered and beleaguered community. And a little later, towards the end of this letter, he writes these words. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know. He wants you to be assured. He wants you to have confidence in the gift of eternal life. Now, if you've been with us, you know that John's style of writing is very different than a lot of other books that we find in the New Testament. He doesn't write in a linear progression, like it's a step-by-step argument. He writes more like a song or a musical composition, revisiting a few themes over and over and over again. And uh, Iron mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, one of the themes that he keeps revisiting is these tests for real Christianity. How do you know you have the real thing? How do you know you've really gotten it? And I want to say, because whenever you mention a word like test, people get a little nervous. These are less like an SAT. Okay, everybody take a deep breath. Those of you who are preparing for them. They are more like a medical exam. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, now I'm nervous again. (laughs) Or more specifically, a DNA test. And that's going to be relevant to what we're talking about this morning. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had Lance Lewis last week who did a one-off. But a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, Crawford was preaching through the first part of chapter 3. And he talked about the incredible privilege of being called a child of God. Belonging to his family. And he said, you only know God as father through faith in his son. Faith in his son for the forgiveness of sins and the renewal of your life. And when you believe in Jesus, you are adopted as God's child. That adoption is an act of grace. It's not because we earned it. It's because he has loved us and we receive that love. And this changes everything. In Crawford's words, the way he beautifully put it, those who've been made children of God, begin to live the life of a child of God. They begin to bear the family resemblance of their righteous heavenly father. And he asked a very important question, which was, do you bear the family resemblance? That's where we're going to be picking up this morning, because John continues to talk about life in the family of God. And this morning, he brings up a central characteristic, a primary mark of the family resemblance And that is love, and we got to talk about this. But I want to begin with this so we don't miss the metaphor that John is working here. And the first point that we have to recognize is this. John is saying everybody is in one of two spiritual families. And there's only two. Verse 10 is a radical statement. That's why we picked it up from uh, where Crawford left off. We brought it in this morning to remember how John leads into this. It's a radical statement, and it, it even sounds threatening. Let's be honest. This is what it says. By this it is evident. Who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love. John is painting with stark contrast. Children of God, children of the devil. Now, you have to understand, he's not making a cheap shot. He's not looking at you who do not believe 
and say, devil worshipers, right? He's not name-calling. But he's writing in such a way to arrest your attention, to slow you down, to make you think. And before you dismiss John as some sort of religious fanatic, you you have to wrestle with the fact that he's repeating what Jesus said. In John chapter 8, there's a bunch of religious leaders who are coming to Jesus, and we're told that they have murderous intent. They don't like him, and they want to get rid of him. And Jesus confronts him, and he says, you don't believe in me. All the scriptures have pointed to me. You don't believe in me. And they say, yes, that's because we are children of Abraham. We're God's people. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You're children of the devil. And Jesus said these things to people who were very, very religious. But hold up a second, you might say. You might, you might be thinking, I'm not, I'm not religious at all, right? I kind of wandered in here this morning. Someone brought me, like, child of the devil stuff. Like, no thanks. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes people say things like this to me. They say, you're a person of faith. I'm, I'm just not. Or you're a religious person. I'm not. I'm not spiritual. I'm not, I'm not that type of a person. I wish I could believe, but I just can't. I'm more of a rational, down-to-earth person. And what John is saying and what the whole Bible says is actually that's a very superficial analysis. Everybody's living by faith. Everyone, without exception. Everybody's religious in some sort. Everybody's spiritual. Everybody's in one of two spiritual families. You see, we live by faith in things like this, that we're competent to run our own lives. Where's the evidence for that? Faith that there's no ultimate judge who will call us to account. You don't prove that, but you bank your life on it. That everybody has to decide what is right or wrong for themselves. You know, these are very religious premises, and they're taken by faith. And many of us bank our lives on those things. I wish I could believe, but I can't. I just can't take a leap of faith. But the truth is, you've already leapt. Everyone is part of one of two spiritual families. And this actually is a metaphor that runs throughout the Bible. Two spiritual family trees. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right there, Genesis 3.15. And it plays out in two lineages. Those who believe God and trust him, those who oppose God. And by the way, that opposition to God shows up among the religious and maybe even especially among the religious. But both are living by faith, one by faith in themselves, the other by faith in God and his promises. And this is what is underneath what John is saying. And please listen to this. The devil was the first created being to say, I'm competent to run my own life. I don't need you. I'll call the shots. I'll make my own rules. I'll do it myself. And he has children. If we want to live like that, even if we're religious or spiritual, we are acting out the family values of our father. You're living out the values of the family. This is what John is saying. See, I told you. It's it's bracing. But it's meant to slow us down and think. John brings up Cain as an example in this passage. One of the early stories in the book of Genesis. And even if you're not a Christian or you've you know, not been around the church much, you probably know the story of Cain. He murdered his brother Abel. 
And you're like, okay, but I'm not a murderer. And it said, but how did it begin? It began with envy. It began with jealousy. It, 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 it grew into hatred. Hatred so much, he wanted to get rid of this person from his life. See, John wants us to take the test. And it's not an SAT test. It's a DNA test. And more specifically, it's a paternity test. Who's your daddy? It's what John is saying. Who's your daddy? Paternity tests aren't measuring your performance. They're designed to reveal something about who you are, what history you belong to, who you belong to. And yes, this is unsettling, but we got to hear it. If any of you have watched uh, the Apple TV series, Ted Lasso, um, I can't make recommendations from up front because that always gets me into trouble. But it's an amazing show. And uh, in the second season, Ted Lasso has brought in a sports psychologist, a therapist to help his team. And of course, you can see this coming from a mile away that ultimately she's got to help Ted. Right? Ted has some things that he's not dealing with. And there's this awesome scene where they're having that moment, that breakthrough moment. And uh, Ted is wrestling with whether he wants to face the truth. And she says, repeating the words of Jesus, Ted, the truth will set you free, but not until it's ticked you off. Only she doesn't say ticked. She says something else. Don't send me any emails. All right. Everyone's in one of two spiritual families. If that ticks you off, maybe it is the truth that will set you free. But here's the second thing. And getting into the meat of this passage, love is part of the DNA of the family of God. See, Paul puts it, uh, John puts it negatively in verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. But he puts it positively in verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he brings them both together in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Listen, love is a spiritual marker of belonging to the family of God. It is how the world knows who belongs to God, is what, what John writes in verse 10. By this it is evident, it's made manifest. But it's also one of the ways we know. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life when we love. This is so central to the teaching of the Bible that often we miss it. What did Jesus say the, the, the two greatest commandments were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He squeezed down the Ten Commandments that we spent ten weeks looking at and he said... It's really spelling out what it looks like to love. The Apostle Paul writes, love is the fulfillment of the law. Right? When you love the way God intends, you're actually fulfilling his commands. And then Paul writes that love is actually the fruit of the new life we have in the Spirit. And this is vital for us to hear, okay? Because this isn't what the church in America is known for. You know the old saying, they will know we are Christians by our love? What are we known for? By our hate. Now, I, I'll admit, often that characterization 
is incredibly unfair. But sometimes it's not. And perhaps it's never clearer than when we confuse Christianity with partisan politics. And it happens on both sides of the aisle, right? We hate CNN. We hate Fox News. We hate Donald Trump. We hate Joe Biden. But what if we were known instead for love? If it's not producing love, something is terribly wrong. But we have to remember that the kind of love John is talking about isn't Texas nice. And it's not Silicon Valley open-mindedness. It's love patterned after the work of Jesus. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The essence of the love that John is talking about is self-sacrifice. You see, hate is fundamentally self-serving. It acts for itself at the expense of others. But love is other-oriented. It acts for others at the expense of oneself. And according to Jesus, this love should be extended to our neighbors and even our enemies. But here John draws our focus to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because self-sacrificial love should characterize the community called the church. It's supposed to be in our DNA as members of the family of God. John says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. And it's such a great phrase because he's basically saying, it's been about this the whole time. That Don't you see? And you know, there's some marvelous stories about this uh, in the early church. If you read the book of Acts, if you're new to the Christian faith, Acts is kind of like this narrative of the spread of the gospel uh, in the first century world. And uh, there, there's this amazing story in Acts chapter 11 in a town called Antioch. And Antioch was one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the world at that time. And Antioch was unique in that it not only had walls outside its city, like most ancient you know, cities did, but had walls inside, separating the different tribes and people groups from one another. So you had different sections. You had a Syrian section. You had an African section. You had a Jewish section. You had a Greek section. At least all that. And Acts 11 tells us that when the gospel came to Antioch, it was spoken to Greeks and Jews and everybody there, and lots of people converted. And Barnabas, one of Paul's companions, comes to check it out. And you know what he says? He says, wow, in the Greek. Right? It's like, People are coming across the walls, and the walls are coming down, and you have Syrians and Africans and Jews and Greeks all gathering together at the same table, loving one another. And the city said, we've never seen anything like this before. So they made up a name for it. And you know what the name that they came up with was? Christians. The first time followers of Jesus were called Christians is when people saw in a community a love like that. A love that crosses borders and tears down walls. John makes a very practical application in verse 17. He says, so, if any of you sees a brother or sister in need and you have stuff to help and you don't help, how can the love of God abide in you? And the language that he uses is, closes your intestines towards them, right? But English 
Translators don't, that sounds gross, right? It's closing your heart. It's like you cut off your gut from feeling something for your brother or sister. Or the way we like to say it is, you harden your heart. And what John is saying is, the DNA of people who belong to God and are part of his family, right, is costly love. Real Christianity produces costly love. And if it's not producing that, something is terribly wrong. Costly love is part of the family resemblance of those who belong to God's family because love is part of our spiritual DNA. And John says these words, let us not love with mere talk. I'm a talker. (laughs) This is unsettling to me. Let us love in deed and in truth. You know what that looks like? It looks like making meals for each other. It looks like cleaning up people's houses after someone died in their family, showing up at weddings and funerals, listening to somebody who talks too much, making time for the person who annoys you, but no one else will make time for. It looks like showing up in people's lives with your stuff to help. It means sacrificing your time and your energy because love is other-oriented and it acts for others at the expense of oneself. And it's patterned after Jesus. Now let me say this. Because John talks so starkly throughout his letter, it is important to recognize that John doesn't think Christians are sinless. Far from it. He even says, and you'll remember this from the first or second sermon, twice he says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth isn't in us. Like we're actually of the devil, is what he says, if we don't think we have it. So what do we do, how do we make sense of the fact that John says things like, whoever does not love abides in death, or you know, a couple weeks ago, no one born of God sins, right? These just stark statements. And if we understand how John talks, I, I think we'll actually get what he's saying. In my family, um, we fight. And uh, my children fight, and sometimes they do some really terrible things. And, uh, and so does dad, right? Not so much mom. But um, <clears throat> I'll sit down with my kids sometimes and look them eye to eye after I've caught them doing something or in their middle of something. I'll say, we do not do that in our family. We don't do that. Now listen, none of my children has ever said, uh, just did. <laughs> right? And you know Why? Because they understand what I'm doing. Is I'm, I'm not saying these things to say they're incapable of ever doing it. And I'm not saying these things to make them doubt my love or question whether they really belong to this family. I'm saying these things to help them understand and live in accordance with our family values. We don't do that here. John says, we're not a people of hate. We're a people of love. Costly love, patterned after Jesus. Take the test. Does it show up in your life anywhere? If you have no love, you're not part of the family of God. But we have to remember, and this is really important, it is not our love that puts us in this family. It is His love. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, is how he began in chapter 3, verse 1. Those who have been loved by God 
must and will love. I'm running out of time, but I want to talk about verses 19 through 24 by asking this question. What do you do when you recognize you don't love well? So you take the test. It's one of the ways that you know and can have your heart can be assured. That's what John says in verse 19, looking back at what he's just said. But what if your heart isn't? The call to love can stir up feelings of inadequacy and failure in us, almost like nothing else. I don't love like this. I can't love like this. And an inner voice of condemnation just prattles on inside. You know, John is a wise pastor. Just when it feels like, like our head is dunked under the water and we can't breathe, he brings us up. He knows how we feel sometimes. So he addresses this. What do we do when our hearts condemn us? Verse 20. How do you silence the inner voice of condemnation? Right? And here's the key thing. It is not by looking within. You don't silence the inner voice of condemnation by looking inside for the inner voice of self-affirmation or self-love. You solve it by looking outside yourself to God, he says, who is greater than our hearts and knows everything. It is by looking outside of ourselves to his word and his promises. You can trust in his mercy and forgiveness. You can trust in his help. See, John is writing because he wants you to have confidence before him. That's what he says in verse 21. And he even wants you to have the confidence to ask for what you need, verse 22. And a lot of times we get sidetracked by this language of whatever we ask, we can be confident that we can receive from it. As if it's saying like Ferraris and promotions and this kind of stuff. It is nestled in this context about love. It's not a blank check. It's qualified in all sorts of ways later, according to his will, in his name. But those who have their hearts put to rest in his presence have confidence that God delights to hear the prayers. You know, I have a friend in my pastor's group that I've met with for 20 years. And um, it is a, it's uncanny how many of his prayers get answered. We've watched his prayers for our family members, for ourselves, for people in his church. And it's like, God just answers his prayers all the time. I'm like, this is so unfair, right? But it dawned on me one day when I was paying attention to what he prayed for. It had been shaped by his life and his relationship with the Father. He prays for what God loves and what God desires and what God wants to do. And over and over again, lo and behold, God shows If you are struggling to love, have you asked God to help you love? See, verse 23 is John's version of Jesus' summary of the law. He's bringing us back down to earth. He's like, look, I don't want your heart to, to be all bent out of shape and suffering from the inner voice of condemnation. If you're feeling that, you need to look to God. Only his verdict, his voice can overcome that. I want you to walk in his ways so that your heart is at rest. And what are his ways? He wants you to trust his son and his word, and he wants you to try to love, right? That sounds very similar to what Jesus said. Love God and love your neighbor. And if you give yourself to this, you will discover 
Verse 24, God has given his spirit to help you. Help you not abide in death and hatred, right? But to abide in love, to live out the family values, to bear the family resemblance. It's the spiritual DNA. You know, I was um, meeting with somebody this past week, and um, he said something to me that, that is very humbling to hear and uh, almost brought me to tears. He, he said, this church is the first place that he and his wife have felt loved instead of used. Those are beautiful words. But that's sadly not always true of everyone's experience. And so all of us have to ask, like, what characterizes our life? Is it hatred or love, right? Is it selfishness or giving ourselves away? And if this unsettles you, don't forget the good news. Don't forget what John has said. We have an advocate with the Father when we sin. Jesus, who's the atoning sacrifice for us. We can confess and be cleansed, right? But we need to go on and love. And John writes, going back to verse 16, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. It's not just that we know what love is by Jesus' example, but we actually experience ourselves. He laid down his life for us. Friends, mercy is not going to flow out of your heart unless it's been poured into it. Grace isn't going to come forth from you Unless it's been showered all over you, love's not going to come out of you or me unless it's gotten inside of you. Has it? Has it got a hold of you? When it gets a hold of us, we, we actually live out a beautiful family life. Because what binds us together as a community is our common need for grace and forgiveness. For costly love. For somebody to lay down their life for us. If we forget that, we become a self-righteous, harsh, critical, and judgmental community. Every one of us needed God to rescue us. We got no right to look down our nose at anybody. We aren't united by our politics or our education or ethnicity or our income. We're united by one thing, our desperate need of Jesus. And when we get a hold of this, or better, it gets a hold of us, it actually makes us tender-hearted, makes us eager to reconcile, makes us willing to help. It makes us long to forgive one another. Some of us might need to write an email this week or set up a coffee with somebody or have a hard conversation or ask for forgiveness and confess sins because God's people love. You've heard the adage, hurt people hurt people. Loved people love people. And if you struggle to love, ask God to help you. Do you really think the father would send the son to lay down his life for you and then leave you alone in your struggle? What kind of father would that be? Abide in his love and we will learn to love one another. It's part of our spiritual DNA. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your love which pursues us And rescues us and adopts us into your family. And then remolds us and reshapes us into people of love. And God, we are desperate for your work in our lives. Would you open our eyes to the needs right before us? Would you make us a people who 
know how to love in deed and in truth? And Father, would this flow out of a deep experience that we've had of your love for us and of knowledge of your Son who laid down his life for us in love? Holy Spirit, do this work in our hearts. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.